Who wants to be a millionaire? Well, everyone puts their hands up in the air, but it's like once upon a time when we were coloured. That wasn't what the doctor ordered. We weren't supposed to get above our station or to try too much to improve our situation. And our parents were left in no possible doubt that they were invited to clean up after the war and then to make their own way out. But even back then, when things were so hard, there were one or two people who got together to pard and pooled their resources so they could each buy a home, two ups, two downs, and a little bit of chrome so they could take a picture and send it back home to the Caribbean. Because, if truth be told, this was while African immigrants still believed that the streets in England were paved with gold. But if you were from what they used to call the West Indies, you understood that value came from owning properties and you worked hard for it from dusk till dawn, sometimes doing two jobs and sometimes three, any amount of jobs you could do legally. And the partner became the unofficial bank of mum and dad to see you through the good times and to support you through the bad. You were able to feed, clothe and shelter your family and send your picnic to university and in a generation go from working class to middle class and be a credit to the nation. This was our parents' ambition. Not get rich quick or die trying, but work hard for it, twice as hard for it as your friends done, to achieve the same as your friends done. Because like it or not, we were coloured, and that was the reason why we suffered, but our money was as good as theirs. When cash is king, nobody cares what colour you are. Just bring your pound shillings and pence and your Yankee dollar. The more the merrier. When the penny dropped, some felt it and some lived by denying it. Some got rich and some kept trying it. Some came correct and some are still styling it. Like money, 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 money is the root of all problems. Still today, some people act like it don't make no sense to be young, gifted, black and rich is not the correct sentence. Even though you've got so many young black millionaires, it's like it ain't filtered down to the national psyche or people just don't care. We're still not taken seriously when it comes to asking for a loan. The bank manager looks us up and down and treats us like Papa was a rolling stone. Not like Mick Jagger with a swagger, the original baby father, but like black man's got a syndrome and he knows how to throw a brick. Wherever he lays his hat is his home, but he doesn't know how to work a lick. They're so old school, they don't want to stop believing a black man's more like a waste man than a businessman. On account of the one or two of the mandem who confirmed their suspicion, we can't watch that. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize and lift the community to where we want it to be, where people are taking us seriously because we run things and things no run we. But how do you make your first million? And then after that, how do you make your second million? I asked Alexander, the millionaire, the ringtone mogul, about how he was able Alexandra Mose is one of the youngest self-made millionaires in Britain. His background is in Nigeria and he started from rather humble beginnings. He's here to tell us his story. And I understand, Alexander, that uh, pretty much you, you fell upon your first million. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's a, a good analogy. To, but, uh, you know, I think it's hard work. I mean, I think, um, you know, when you kind of push and push and push and push to try and deliver yourself to to achieve something eventually you get that you know out of a thousand no's that one lucky yes and I guess that's how I got to where I am today so I won't necessarily say just kind of 
popped up. But hey, you know, it's all the same process. Tell us that story. How did you make your first million? Um, I, I, you know, it's it's an interesting process because you know from a very young age, um, you know, I've been doing stuff from paper round. You know, when I was you know twelve, you know, obviously making money through that. Did um, five side tournaments in school to raise money. Um, I did basketball competitions. I did parties. You know, charging people at the door. You know, in, in college to make money. Um, we had a DJ uh, group that goes to different people's houses to, you know, when they want to have a house party, we bring our equipment and they'll have party and they'll pay us 250 pounds just to come with our equipment to, you know, to party in their house. Um, so there's been a process of doing different sort of mini ventures, so to speak, to try and generate income. And I guess when I was 24, or should I say when I was 18, I started a cleaning company on the basis of my aunt telling me to come and clean a house. And the reason why she asked me to clean the house was because she was heavily pregnant and she couldn't do it. And you know, me being young, I'm like, why is she calling me to come and clean the house? You know, but um, I uh, I did it. I cleaned upstairs, downstairs, the bathroom, the whole works. And you know, she gave me 20 pounds. And as I guess every entrepreneur does when you leave that sort of environment thinking about it, it's like, well, how many other pregnant women in the UK that need the house cleaned? So, you know, I just went home and started the cleaning company and basically um you know started that and was probably earning about 1500 quid a month cleaning people's houses you know generating that kind of income and you know um, interviewing cleaners in the school canteen and you know giving them 10 pounds and i'll take 10 pounds so you know they'll do the work and i'll just go and clean it afterwards and, and that was you know that was kind of like the the um, I guess the understanding of that process of how to make money and how to be an entrepreneur. Um, so when I was 24 and I bought my first mobile phone, which was a Nokia 3210, it was, you know, playing around with it. You know, you press one, two, three, and that gives you do, re, mi. You thought, okay, well, this is interesting. Let me see if I can create a piece of music. And obviously after spending about two, three hours, I created, you know, Big Pimpin' by Jay-Z. So not really thinking much of it. I gave my, my brother the phone, he went to school played it to a couple of these friends and literally 21 people came back to our house asking for the same ringtone. And, you know, being an entrepreneur, if you've got, you know, a mass audience, you, are, you charge them a pound. So we made 21 quid and that's how we started the ringtone business. Um, and before I knew it, within a year, we turned over 1.6 million, you know? So I guess, you know, when you say you fell on it, it's not quite <laughs> that process. I think you have to have that tenacity to kind of, you know, let's try something. Okay, it fails. All right, learn from your mistake, then try something else. You know, okay, well, that didn't work too well. Let me tweak it a little bit to make more money. Okay, right, move on to another project. And gradually you get to that part where, you know, you do something that actually does kind of work really well. And then you kind of move on. And I guess throughout my career, that's been the story, which is, you know, you start with one, build it, move on to the next. And obviously the ultimate goal is to, you know, kind of achieve that ultimate success. You start with one million and then you move on to two million. How, how much harder was that second million? Um, well, it's, it wasn't that hard because of the ringtone business was booming so well. So we did 1.6 in the first year. Um, and then I think we did about two in the second and the, the whole process of the three years that I had it, we turned over 6.6 million. And then the market was getting a little bit funny where, you know, normally we'd put an advert in the Sun newspaper full page for say five grand, for instance. Um, that whole week we would make five grand back on the same day. The next day we'd make a five grand and, you know, you make five grand till Saturday. You know, that, that's how 
money was being rolled in. Um, but one day when we put you know, an advert in there for five five thousand pounds, and then it took us the whole week to make that five thousand back. Alarm bells start ringing. It's time to get out. So what I did was um, I went to all my competitors and said, "Look, you know, we're ready to sell. You know, we've got um, a library of uh, about five thousand content of uh, ringtones. Would you want to buy it? You know." And we went to different competitors and we found a company in Germany that said, "Look, you know, we'll buy your content because it'll probably take us two years to build that. We can capitalize on it." And we sold it for just under nine million. You make it sound easy. It's never easy. And, and yeah. you had to have a certain understanding of the market as well, because the uniqueness of your ringtones company was that you were, you were promoting ringtones that other companies weren't promoting. Absolutely. Um, I think our f original focus and the reason why I actually started it was when I did my research, um, there were companies in America and Ireland that were doing pop and rock, but nobody was focusing on R&B or hip hop. So my focus was to create content for R&B and hip hop. But that diversified quickly because the market and sort of my peers, which were very kind of diverse, you know, we had an Asian friend, we had a Turkish friend, we had a Greek friend, we had a Chinese friend, you know, they wanted their ringtones in their culture. So before we knew it, we became a multicultural company providing content for different nationales, which the other big guys weren't interested in. In fact, that wasn't their concern. So when they realized that actually, hold on a minute, these guys are capturing a big audience that we could, that's when they started entering into my market and I started entering into their market. So it kind of was a crossover, but there was a good period of three years where they felt it wasn't really important. And it was very important to us because that's what made you know, or everyone come to us because, you know, their mums would be like, oh, get me that Chinese, you know, and they would get their favourite song in Chinese. And, you know, and, you know, thinking about it now, you know, we had um, about 21 staff. You know, I was the eldest at 24 and the youngest was 16. And we had several 16 year olds who would be making ringtones on their mobile phone and we'll be paying them five pounds per ringtone. And you know, for them, it was great. It was like, you just keep on making ringtones, you know. So it was, it was great to kind of have that um, excitement at that period of time you know um, looking back to it now it's like we had playstations snooker table it wasn't really work it was kind of fun but at the same time the fun was making money at the same time and I think you know if you're gonna jump into any business it's you've got to have that kind of not that you're thinking oh my god I've got to go to work today you know oh, you know but there's an excitement that you, you know how many ringtones are we gonna sell today and you know what offers are gonna come out of that and you know we get challenges to say look we've got this particular song can you make it for us and then we'll give it to the ringtone guys and you know they'll make it within half an hour and then we'll say right we've got it you know obviously spend your three pound fifty and we'll send it to you so it was it was an ex exciting period for me as a young person because the responsibility to have 21 employees was a, a big big really big on my shoulders, you know, from that age, because, you know, I was looking after them. Um, but... But that was the learning curve, wasn't it? Was it? A, it was a, a fantastic... Exactly. And, and that was perhaps um, junior school, primary school, or kindergarten for you. Absolutely. But at the age of, what, 20... 24. No, but at the time when you sold that... I sold that uh, four years later, so I was around... I was around about 28. So at the age of 28, you've already sold your first company. Yeah. What did you do then? Oh, so I uh, took uh, a couple of years out. So I got married, had, you know, got, uh, had a child. Um, and then I thought about, you know, what's next? You know, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you've, you've sold a company for nine million. Great. Tick box. How do you get to 500 million? 
you know, that's the process in your mind. And you were thinking that... Oh, absolutely. As you were Relaxing. getting married. You know, you can't stay stagnant. You've always got to reinvent yourself and move to that next... And did your wife know that you were thinking this at the time? Oh, absolutely, she because knew. I was fidgeting all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, my mind is like, okay, you know, she's like, I dares. Because during that time as well, I mean, you know, there was a big economic crisis with the mortgages and you know, people weren't spending. It was actually embarrassing if you went to go and buy a brand new car and the neighbours were losing their house. So, you know, there was a lot of issues around that time so in my mind I'm thinking what could I do what could I launch that would allow my business to survive in the worst economic state you know that's the process that's what I was looking for and looking at the brands the luxury brands market I noticed that actually Louis Vuitton the prices and you know sales didn't go down you know people were still buying you know despite the crisis um, same with Gucci and all the luxury brands or most of them in particular you know the prices were still you know in terms of income they were generating was you know so for me it was like okay you have to set up your own luxury brand you know um, so I woke up one day said right we're gonna start an Alexander Mosu brand um, what am I gonna go into and I was still thinking about what you know, how am I going to launch it? And then a friend of mine called me for an advice on, you know, um, buying his wife a mobile phone. And at that time, he wanted to buy his wife a Virtue handset. Um, so he called me to the office and it's like, look, you know, I want to buy my wife a Christmas present. It's one of these Virtue handsets. So it's supposed to be, you know, very high end, you know. But my wife likes a Samsung D900, which is very basic, you know. So I said, well, if that handset broke, the Samsung D900, would she go and buy a Virtue or would she buy another Samsung? I said, probably buy another Samsung. So I said, well, how about, you know, we try and create the Samsung to a high end, you know? So rather than you buy a Virtue handset, why don't we create the Samsung so it's luxury? So we put gold, we put diamonds on it. And he said, well, that's, that's an interesting idea. Can you do it? So I said, well, I can try. So I said, well, how much would it cost? So, you know, finger in the air, 10,000 pounds. All right, here's a check for 10,000 pounds. And, but strangely enough, you know, um, I took the phone apart because of my experience with mobile phones. And I took a particular piece of the front um, to Hatton Gardens. And I said, look, I need this piece in solid gold. And um, it took them four attempts to get it exactly perfect so that when I put the phone back, it fit, fitted. Um, so I made this piece in solid gold. Then I went down the road and found a diamond setter who then set it in diamonds. And then I put the phone back together, bought a nice luxury box and you know, put it in the box, whatever, test the phone to see if there was any signal drop or any interference with, with the gold and the phone. And, um, you know, it was, it was perfect. So, you know, went down, you know, dropped the guy the phone. He was amazed, like, wow, you know. And I explained to him, your wife has the only Samsung D900 in the world that has diamonds in it. You can't find anything else. It's unique. So uh, a month later, he calls me and says, you know what? My life in the bedroom has been fantastic because of this phone. I've got the best phone in the world, nobody's got it, da da da. And through that, I started getting references of people calling me to say, look, you know, um, we would like um, a Nokia in gold, or we want, you know, because what was happening was even though um, Virtue had launched this luxury brand, it had its disadvantages. It, you know, it didn't have, for example, um, emails, it didn't have, a picture it was like having a Lamborghini without a stereo you know which some people liked but also some people didn't some people wanted the functionality of a standard phone but wanted it luxury so I kind of created a gap in the market without even kind of knowing it so people would come into me all right I want the um, 2G iPhone but I want it with diamonds and um, that was when we created the first 2G iPhone 
I went into Selfridges and I sat, sat down with the buyer and I said, look, you know, I've got this idea of creating, um, customizing normal phones, you know, but making it very high end. And they said, well, it wouldn't work. You are now a high-end designer. Yes. Like. The Amosu brand is out there. Not only do you make customised or uh, telephones, mobile phones, but also you've got the most expensive champagne in the world, is it? Most expensive champagne, most expensive suit. Um, we do accessories. Uh, we do bespoke jewellery. Um, so we consider ourselves... So who buys this sort of stuff? Well, I think it's um, the wealthy, the you know the Russians, the Middle Easterns. How about Nigerians? And Nigerians. Do you find that spirit of entrepreneurship, which motivated you to get not just your first million but your subsequent millions, do you find that in Nigeria as well? Is that spirit there? Oh, absolutely. I, I always say that you know we Nigerians are probably one of the top entrepreneurial countries in the world, you know, um, down to the guy on the street, he knows. I mean, there's no, there's no one giving you handouts. You have to use your head to think about how you're going to make money. So if it's, you know, putting packaging water and selling it on the street or standing on the side road to become a, a part-time mechanic because you know someone's going to have a puncture or, you know, whatever creativity you want to think about to actually make money. We do that from the bottom all the way to the top. You know, I always say that you could chuck a Nigerian in the middle of a, a, a no man uh, a desert and what they'll do is probably pick up the ground, put some shells in there and go sell it to this tourists and say, take a part of this. You know, whatever we need to do, we'll do it. You know, um, so that's what, a, why is the country struggling economically in that case? There's not enough opportunities, um, I think, in terms of giving or sharing of the equal amount of monies that come into the country. You're either rich or you're poor. And I think there's a big division between the two. I think, you know, if we could encourage the lower end to have a bit of that money to fluctuate and to invest into their business, to giving them a, a, a little bit of a chance. I like to help entrepreneurs who've got great ideas between the ages of 16 to 27. They come to me with their ideas and I basically give them seed funding. Projects that we do where we call Mind of Entrepreneur, we get some entrepreneurs to come and speak to individuals who are thinking about businesses or so successful entrepreneurs to talk about their ideas and the businesses. Just to, you know, make people understand that sometimes, you know, when you see an entrepreneur who's successful, they've actually gone through the same process you've gone through. It, it hasn't been a silver spoon kind of mentality. You know, you've grown, you know, you've had hardships, you've had, you know, problems, and that understanding is quite important. Alexander, you're, you're a successful uh, entrepreneur of Nigerian heritage, flying between Britain and Nigeria. You see how the world works yep. in terms of business. Yep. Is there more that Nigeria could do to uh, enhance the entrepreneurship in its own country? Or is there more that the West can do to elevate many of the people in Nigeria who aren't making it, who are poor at the moment? Whose responsibility is it, if you like? Well, the responsibility lies with the Nigerian people and the Nigerian government first and foremost. I think, you know, um, being a young entrepreneur starting here, there was a lot of facilities available to me to be able to enhance my entrepreneurial skills, you know, through the government and through, you know, just general businesses and entrepreneurs in general. And I think the Nigerian government needs to have funds like the Prisoners Trust to be able to assist people who've got basic ideas to get to the next level. In terms of the outside world, you know, rather than coming to the country and say, well, we're gonna spend this money on, on, on this charity and give it to this person, I think it's got 
got to be more of an entrepreneurial idea where rather than you're giving money to people, you're actually creating an opportunity for them to make a business that succeeds. So it's not that you're coming every year to hand, hand out money. You're actually creating a business where they can actually carry that business on and generate income for themselves. So I think that makes more sense than just sending over charity money and rather than empowering the people so that they actually got something built, created job opportunities that they know that actually, you know what, once that money runs out, they can actually turn it into physical money and actually self, self-sustain themselves. And that's the important factor in it. Um, I mean, I'm investing heavily into Africa at the moment with Camson Luxury Group buying luxury brands and I'm hoping that with bringing these luxury brands I'm going to create opportunities and jobs and also be able to invest and promote and encourage younger Nigerians to be more successful when it comes to businesses. Alexandra Mosu, thank you very much. Thank you so much.